our guests here with us this morning. We are glad you are here today. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, question number seven, uh, of course, I've said before, we are not a creedal church, but if you're from a creedal background, a more liturgical high church background, uh, you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I printed question number seven for you in the bulletin insert, but it asks the question, what is God? And this is used in a catechism to teach young people especially, and us old people, uh, about some theological precision in our answers. But the first part of the answer reads in that confession of faith, God is spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory. And uh, so we come to this passage about glory. And we just started a six-week series last Sunday speaking about the glory of God and what that means. We use the term glory of God. We read about it in Scripture, but can we really define it? And re do we really have a grip and a grasp on what the glory of God is. So last week we looked at Psalm 19 where it talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And I was reading this week, I, uh, my exposure to the sciences was very minimal, so I have to take this at face value. And uh, perhaps you're uh, more of an astronomer type of person. But anyway, I was reading uh, about Amazing Truths by Michael Gullion. And he writes that astronomers uh, have come down to believe that galaxies and galaxy clusters are full of some sort of exotic material. And they call this exotic material dark matter. You may have heard of that uh, phrase before. They haven't quite identified it, what it is exactly. And they haven't really established that dark matter truly exists uh, so I'm glad I'm not an astronomer, by the way. Uh, despite decades of using every possible means of detection, they have yet uh, to detect dark matter, matter in a uh, concrete way where they can definitely say it's out there. But that's not the only astonishing thing about modern astrophysics. They have discovered also uh, another mystifying reality, and they call it dark energy, dark energy. All told, astronomers have concluded that dark energy comprises about 68% of the total universe and dark matter another 27%. Uh, that means only 5% of our universe is visible to us. In other words, everything we call scientific knowledge is based on but a pittance of what there is to know about our world. 95% of it is hidden from us, even with all of our advances in science, 95% of our knowledge is in the dark about the universe. And what is real or not, or possible or not, even that force exists literally right under our noses. So I get really confused when I read about dark matter and dark energy, uh, but yet it speaks of the glory of God, and the Bible is correct. The heavens declare or are speaking forth the glory of God. I'm more familiar with dandelions. I want to come back to the earth. And uh, I have a yearly battle with dandelions, which I never win. I always lose, but this helps me to understand why. In fact, I kind of have an affinity for dandelions because my mother's mother, my grandmother, who is from Missouri, uh, she would make dandelion green salads, and she would use them as an edible plant. And uh, thankfully, uh, I don't do that anymore. So, but... Uh, in our world, uh, there are 10 to 14 million species of living things. 
And the lowly dandelion is found on all of the Earth's continents. These tenacious plants seem to flourish anywhere and everywhere. And dandelion flower heads are perfectly designed for maximum seed creation and dispersible, dispersal. Excuse me. Each yellow flowering head can disperse 50 to 175 weeds on a wind on a day. And one single dandelion plant can create more than 2,000 seeds. That's why I never win the dandelion battle. Uh, in a recent column on the New York, in the New York Times, uh, they talked about the power of plants that we have in our yards and around us. And uh, they said that they're as close to biological miracles as scientists could dare to admit. One writer wrote, after all, they allow us to eat sunlight, and plants also produce oxygen, build topsoil, hold it in place, prevent floods, sequester carbon dioxide, buffet, buffer extreme weather, and clean our water. Even at the deepest depths of the ocean, 20,000 feet down, there are plants, there are things that grow without sunshine and without oxygen, somehow getting the nutrients they need that come out of the vents of the ocean floor. It's really mind-blowing, but when we think of uh, God's creative ability and creative things, we start getting an idea of the glory of God. The glory of God is that which is being declared by the glory of the universe. <clears throat> you know, this church's purpose statement, I should actually have you recite it because it's in the bulletin every week, but Grace Point's purpose statement is, Grace Point exists to display the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's our fundamental purpose in all other things. That is why we exist, not only as a church, but as individuals, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this passage today, and we're going to continue looking at what it means to be in the midst of God's glory, as well as we're going to start opening up uh, this whole subject of how do we glorify God. Remember, the word glory occurs in Scripture over 300 times, and the word glorify, the, that, that word occurs many, many times also. Before we get into the main content of the passage that was read for us in Ephesians, I wanted to do a very quick word study because this is important about where we're going here. When we do a word study in Scripture, we look at where it occurs. If you have a concordance at home or maybe in the backs of your Bibles, you have a concordance and you can look up an English word and you can see where else it occurs. Uh, if you use a Strong's Concordance, they will have numbering and it'll lead you to the Greek word or the Hebrew word that's being used and translated into the English. But the word I wanted to look at is a Greek word and it is translated in the lexicon as abound or exceed. It is a significant word in scripture. Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20 where he says that to an entrance into God's kingdom demands righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the word that we're looking at, that exceeds or is more abundant than, or it surpasses uh, that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That kind of righteousness is required to enter the kingdom. Now, the Pharisees, for the most part, and the scribes, get quite a bad rap as we look at the Gospels and through Scripture and through the lens of history. And yet, uh, for many of them, they did try to live righteous lives. In Matthew 23, 2, it tells us they knew the scriptures. Luke 18, 12, they tithed. In uh, Matthew 9 and Luke 18, they fasted twice a week. They were diligent in prayer, Mark tells us. 
and they tried to obey the Mosaic law. And actually, some were found blameless. The Apostle Paul, who had been a, a Pharisee as Saul, uh, was found blameless in Philippians 3, 6, which is an interesting study all of its own. And some uh, were zealous for their beliefs and tried to live by them. We see that in the book of Acts, Acts 26. Uh, to exceed that lifestyle as Christ commanded was no small thing. And so that's the word that's used there, surpasses, exceeds, is much in abundance. Also, uh, the Lord used the same word in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember, the young man left, took his inheritance, left, and eventually found himself feeding pigs and eating pig food in a far, far foreign, foreign country. And he was in this far country, and he remembered that in his father's house, the servants had more than enough bread in New American Standard, food to spare, NIV, bread enough and to spare in the King James Version in Luke 15, 17. That's the word. The translators seem to struggle to express this expansiveness of this word. All the translators agree that it means more than enough. It is abundant. Paul also used this same word to describe the gifts that the churches in Greece were giving for the relief of the saints in Israel in 2 Corinthians. This word, again, conveys this idea of much abundance. In the New Testament, uh, the words, a Greek word, can be intensified by adding a prepositional prefix before the word itself. And that's the case we have in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where this word that we're looking at, which is translated abound or exceed, is a prefix is added to it where it reads, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, more abound. And so it's intensified by more abound. It's the basic word with a prepositional prefix before it. In other words, the superabundant grace of God takes away our sin. And in that alone, we should pause and just thank God for the fact that he is powerful enough that he's poured out his super abundant grace. Uh, when I was about 11 years old, we lived in Denver, Colorado, actually in the suburbs out in Jefferson County near Lakewood. And I have an older sister, and uh, she was going to Bear Creek High School out there in Lakewood. And I, I, she, I think she was a freshman, maybe a sophomore, but... One night we heard that the school was burning, and so we drove out to Bear Creek High School and watched it from a hill, and there were flames shooting out of all of the windows. It was an, it was an old school, and, uh, but it, it, it was burned. It was burning completely. And uh, later on, I was asked about that fire because it was, to my knowledge and memory, it was the first fire of a structure that I'd ever seen. And I think one of my teachers asked me later what it was like, and I said that Bear Creek High School burned up, okay? And she said, no, you're wrong. Bear Creek High School burned down, okay? And I, I really didn't know if they burned up or burned down, but I was intensifying the word burned with adding, and that's an example of how the word is intensified. Whether it burned up or down, all we know is it was gone and they got a new school. <laughs> but in both cases, the adverb after the verb intensifies the meaning. And in New Testament Greek, with a prefix, does the same thing. Uh, and so when you tell your child to quit gobbling up his food, you might say quit gobbling down your food too. The idea is gobbling is intensified, right? Up or down doesn't matter. 
uh, but you are intensifying the verb. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we come to this fantastic, amazing statement. It's really a doxology or a benediction, if you will. And in this, in this phrasing, this paragraph, the Apostle Paul uses that same Greek word. And notice in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, notice the double intensifying of that word, uh, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. And he goes on from there. But here we see that it is doubly intensified. God's glory is poured out in abundance. In fact, consider that word. That Greek word is compounded by two prepositions. Uh, I know, I'm like you, a lot of you. I missed grammar and syntax in seventh grade, okay? I probably didn't pay attention, so I've had to do a lot of catching up uh, in my training for the ministry. But there are two prepositions before that word that's translated uh, surpasses or abundant or exceeds. And here in this passage, uh, about the only way to convey this doubly intensified idea of abounding uh, is this idea of super, super abundant. A double super, super, super abundant is how he did it. Here in Ephesians, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask you think or immeasurably more. You know, the translators are trying to capture in English the power of this one word in this one verse. God is able to super, super abundantly above all things and certainly above all that we ask or think. You know, it's oftentimes uh, I wonder, am I thinking big enough? I remember when we moved to Dallas to go to graduate school and I was riding into class with a couple other guys and I wasn't sure this was the first semester, and I was, you know, under the pile, if you will, uh, with languages and theology and all this, and, and, and I didn't think I could make it. And, and then there was the financial side of it. Uh, I had left a job and didn't have a job, and was I going to make it financially? And uh, I realized, I was convicted of the fact I was worrying about that month, about that week, and yet I had five years to go of graduate school. Could God, could God really provide? Yes, he could. Super, super abundantly. And I'm here today because he super, super abundantly provided for us to make it through five years of grad school. Amazing. Just amazing. Because as I've told you before, I'm educated beyond my intelligence. And he was just very gracious <clears throat> in that. And so this is a very large concept. It's beyond our comprehension in a way. Uh, you know, the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. You know, isn't that true? As children, you know, children are full of wonder. Everything is new. And yet, uh, you know, uh, as we get older, we maybe get a little bit jaded and we don't see as much wonder. I was borrowing a story from Rabbi Zacharias. I'm going to plug in my own grandchildren because I don't know his but we have a five-year-old, a soon-to-be-three-year-old over in Montana, and then uh, less than a one-year-old. And uh, so imagine I'm telling them this story, this fairy tale. If I were telling them all the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. If I told Birdie, she's the five-year-old, and said to her, Birdie, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door, and a dragon jumped out in front of Tommy. Her eyes would get wide, okay? Now, if I told the story to Olive, she's the three-year-old, 
The same story, I would say, Olive, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door. Olive's eyes would get wide at that point. Now, let's imagine I tell the story to little Zeke. Little Zeke, his only word he knows is food, I think. You know, I want to eat. Whose entire worldview is on that plane. All I would have to say to Zeke is a little Tommy got up and walked to the door. And Zeke's eyes would get wise with amazement because he doesn't walk. That's amazing. There's a difference between the three, isn't there? Olive needed the, or excuse me, Birdie needed the dragon. Olive needed just to open the door. And little Zeke, it was just a pretty big deal just to walk up to the door. And so that idea of wonder. And the longer we live, the longer we're exposed to God's word, there is this danger that we can just kind of be ho-hum about it. But here we're talking about the glory of God. And in this passage in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, it appears in this letter that not only is a prayer promise, but also primarily as a worship place where we glory in what God has done. Paul ascribes glory to God in the church and in Jesus Christ for the major things he has done, what he has done. These verses do not constitute a promise that we can ask anything that we want or think except and expect the answers. They ascribe glory to God. That is our first thing. That's why it's the purpose statement of this fellowship is that we are here to display and I, I think that word is critical, not only to speak forth, but to display with our very lives the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So how is God glorified by the use of his super, super abundant power? How has that happened? Well, his glory is manifested in the new society. That's what John R. W. Stott entitles this, his commentary on the book of Ephesians. Uh, uh, here in this passage Uh, He talks about in chapter 2, the new man. But in other words, God is taking care. He's being glorified in the fact that he brought Jewish people and Gentile people together in one body of Christ. There in chapter 2 in verses 13 through 16 that Dave read for us, he talks about the one new man through the blood of Christ. You know, living 2,000 years later and primarily being exposed to Gentile believers and not Jewish believers... Uh, we can get kind of ho-hum about that. We lose the wonder of that. But believe me, historically, in this day and age, in the first century, and before that and beyond that, really, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles were at odds with one another. We still see it in the anti-Semitism that's displayed around the world. We still see it in that dividing wall between secular Jewishness and secular Gentiles, no matter where they're from. But God brought the two together. He took Uh, The Jews of Israel, the ones that are believing in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and Gentiles were introduced to Jesus and formed him into this one new man, and we call it the church. The Bible calls it the church, and we are part of that. It began in Acts chapter 2, over 2,000 years ago, and it is still going. We're heading for consummation. Paul describes the position of the Gentiles before, if you notice, In those verses of chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, he describes Gentiles before the body of Christ that we were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, no hope, without God, far off, at enemy, strangers, foreigners. In other words, we were lost, lost. 
We uh, have the super, super abundant power of God is the only one who could do that, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel message, to combine us together with the chosen people into this new man called the church. We have not been joined into Judaism. We're not even into a redesigned Judaism, as some churches teach. In fact, some churches teach that the church has replaced Israel and is replaced and is the recipient of the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. But that does not hold water when you use correct Bible study methods. And when it forms a new man, we are placed together in the household of God to become a building which the Holy Spirit inhabits None of this could have been accomplished without the super, super abundant glory and power of God himself. And that brings us to chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. How do we glorify God? And this, I'm setting it up for the next few weeks as uh, Mike Wren and Wes Craigle will be talking more about how we glorify God in that sense. And so how do we glorify God? There are four ways in this paragraph. There are four ways we glorify God. In this paragraph, as God has created in Jesus Christ this thing called the new man or the body of Christ or the church that is only something God could do. The super, super abundant power of God has brought us together. So now how do we glorify God? First of all, verse 13 is by not losing heart, not losing heart. Notice in verse 13 again, excuse me. Uh, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Paul is asking believers not to be disheartened, discouraged. Remember that there is another word. We have the word courage with a preposition dis, which means without. And so we can live without courage. And from time to time, all of us have been discouraged, disheartened. We don't want to lose heart. And Paul is encouraging these believers not to get upset, not to become discouraged in how they're praying for him. What was Paul going through? Remember, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. This is when he wrote this letter of Ephesians, Acts 28, verse 30. And Roman law at that time gave people's accusers two years to come forward with the evidence. And so Paul was imprisoned, basically, under house arrest in Rome for over two years, and uh, nobody ever came forward, actually, uh, to accuse him. And they decided not to press their case, probably because they didn't have enough evidence and probably because, well, he's under house arrest, he's out of our hair. And so they let that time pass. But the Apostle Paul was taken out of circulation. Remember, he traveled all over the Middle East planting churches. He was taken out of that. And so people were praying for him, and their prayers were not being answered the way they thought they should be. I don't know if you've ever been there. I think about the time after we became believers at age 28, and we were praying for Don's dad that he would be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our girls were little then, and they would pray, and they would talk to their grandfather. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for uh, the rest of his life. And uh, we, we don't know. He gave, some, he gave some affirmation that he believed in Jesus when he was in World War II in Italy. Uh, we hope that's the case, but we prayed and we prayed, and it became easy to be discouraged. God, don't you know this? Aren't you answering that? And so he, Paul is encouraging people not to get weary in prayer. Do not lose heart. Do not become uh, disheartened in it. Uh, in effect, God is telling the people, not now. I have Paul right where I want him. In fact, that's where he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during those months in house arrest. Uh, 
Uh, even the delay was for God's glory, and it would help them experience the super, super abundant power of God that would sustain them through these months when the apostle was in prison. We glorify God in the church when we don't lose heart, when uh, our prayers are not answered as quickly as we'd like, but instead we continue to persist in prayer. The second way we can glorify God is found in verses 14 through 17, making Christ feel at home in our lives. Look at verse 14 again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When we uh, visited Indonesia uh, back in 1995, we were interior in on what is known as the island of Borneo, but in West Kalimantan, uh, with a tribal people, a Dayak people, the Samangdong. And in their houses, they were on stilts because it would flood, the river would overflow. But in their houses, they had a porch, a front porch, and then they had a people room, which was the first one, and then the rest of the house behind that. And if you were a guest, you could, if you were uh, just stopping by to visit, they would probably visit with you on the porch. But if you were a little bit more important, uh, they would invite you into the people room or their friends or family, and you'd stay there. But you would never wander back into the rest of the house, the bedrooms and whatever kitchen or whatever else was back there. And uh, that's the way our lives are. The chambers of the heart, if you will, God is living within us. And we invite him up to the porch, maybe into the people room, but does he have access to every part of our lives? Are we making feel Christ feel at home? This is an issue of lordship. This is an issue of believers. Is Jesus really Lord of my life? Does he have access to all of my life? Paul here prays that the believers would have the ability to be strengthened so that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Of course, Corinthians tells us that Christ indwells through the power of his Holy Spirit every believer, but that he might be there in a settled way, that he would feel at home in us, that he would be comfortable in our lives. It takes the super, super abundant power of God to change us to be open to that kind of a lifestyle and accomplish for our hearts are rebellious, our wills are stubborn, and our perspective is often too earthly. We must be transformed to conform to his standards. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary used to always say, I remember this, the Christian life is not just hard, it's impossible. And his point was is that without the Holy Spirit working, and the Christian life is impossible. But it is only through the power of the Spirit, his super, super abundant power. The third way we can glorify God is by comprehending the love of Christ. And I would, if I were a betting man, I would wager that most people struggle with God's love because we look out at the world situation, perhaps your own situation, your own uh, circumstances, and you think, how can a loving God allow this? Uh, he's either not all-powerful or he's not all-loving. That's the classic question. And yet, that's what the Apostle Paul prays for here. Look at the second part of verse 17, and that you be rooted and grounded in love and may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You know, his love surpasses our own mental capability to do it, but he wants us to comprehend it. 
that we would know the love of Christ. He prays that we would comprehend. And then he uses directions. He uses the breadth of God's love. And that relates to his including Jews and Gentiles together in this one thing called the church. Uh, There is no one of any race that does not belong in the church. That's why the church is not a nationalistic organization. It is transnational. It is transethnic. There are believers all over the world. It is trans. It goes beyond language. It goes beyond background and culture. The church is universal in that sense. Then he talks about the length of God's love. It extends from eternity past through eternity future. It, uh, there never was, is, or will be a time when we cannot know the love of God. It's always with us. The height of God's love extends to the sphere of the heavenlies. Chapter 1, verse 3. This refers to the realm of heavenly possessions and experience in which the Christian has been brought because of his association with the risen Christ. These are positional truths is what he's talking about. That uh, my condition may be lowly and my condition may be adverse in a sense. And yet as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we possess the riches of heaven not when we die, but right now. And then he talks about the depth of God's love that's great enough to reach down to us in our sinful, fallen condition and rescue us. As I've said before, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a walking miracle. That is the miracle that people have their eyes open to the truth of God's word and that he saves them. The fourth way we can glorify God is growing up in Christ, growing up, maturing in the faith, It results from knowing the love of God, look at the end of verse 19, and may be filled up with all the fullness of God. I remember uh, uh, one of the striking sermons that I remember, and I don't remember a lot, I heard in Chicago while I was there, it was at a pastor's conference at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, there was a well-known speaker uh, who was to present, and he walked out on the platform, and all he was wearing was a diaper. And he was, I suppose he's 40 years old and not in the best of shape, let me put it that way. And he walked out in a diaper with a big, big giant baby bottle with a big nipple on it under his arm. And he went on to talk like a baby and it was the ugliest thing I've ever seen. But his point was, is that we grow up and mature in Christ. We're supposed to, there's nothing, you know, babies are cute and they're lovely and they're wonderful and you don't mind feeding them and changing their diapers, but boy, and it's a 40 year old baby, that's another story, isn't it? And so growing up in Christ, Paul's concern here is that we be filled up to the fullness of Christ. That refers to the maturing of believers, that we're growing in our faith, growing in Christ to the fullness of God, and that's our standard here in this verse. Growing and maturing is a process towards that standard, and this necessitates also the super, super abundant power of God. So these four requests, these four ways to glorify God, not to be discouraged when we pray, to let Christ feel at home in our lives, to be able to comprehend the love of Christ and to mature to the fullness of God precedes that doxology in verses 20 through 21. So we do these things through the super, super abundant power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's glory in the church. Then we honor and glorify Jesus Christ. Uh, Notice that Paul does not say that the super ability of God is uh, does of God produces great success or usefulness because 
of what we accomplish, but rather it produces great maturity by changing and developing who we are fundamentally, our character, our walk in day-to-day life. Obviously, if Christ feels at home in my life and the fullness of Christ is my goal in life, then I will be in the process of being transformed into Christ-likeness. Remember, if you call yourself a Christian, that simply means little Christs. In other words, we should be the spitting images in that sense of what Christ is doing, but it is only through his super, super abundant power that those traits are developed in our lives and in our church. And by the way, any church is made up of individuals, and each one of us is only responsible for our response to a righteous, holy God. But collectively, gathering together, it lends itself to the formation of this church that glorifies God and displays his glory in Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards was probably, by all estimation, the greatest preacher in the New World in America. He preached in the 1700s. And you can read a lot about him. But he had a series of resolutions that he formed his life by. And this is one of his resolutions. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether others do or not, I will. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And thank you for blessing us with one another. Thank you for your